0: Bienvenidos, and welcome to episode 14 of the Jacobin Sports Show. I am Matthew Miranda, happy to be joined, as always, by the labyrinth. I can't pronounce the word, Jonah. I had such a good adjective <laughs> for you today, and I even wrote it out <laughs> phonetically, and I can never... So it's the adjective of labyrinth, which I think is labru, labyrinth. Labyrinthian. Say it? <laughs> Labyrinthian. 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 Yeah. It never looks that way to me, and and... And I, I, I blew the intro and I threw the whole thing up. But, Jonah, I'm glad you're here. Um, no, Does adju-
1: that mean, like, are you trying to say I'm mysterious or, like, yes. I contain multitudes I kind think, of thing? Or I what's think, going on here? I think
0: all roads point to Jonah Birch. And so that's what I meant by that adjective. Wow. It's, it's a compliment, you know? I appreciate it. Um, you know, I'll take it that way. Next week, I'm going to pick something monosyllabic and just roll with it. Follow us on Twitter, please, at Jackman Sports, J-A-C-O-B-I-N. And you can email us thoughts or questions at jacobinsports at gmail.com. Let's just get right into today's episode. There's a lot to talk about. We want to talk with our guest about a number of articles that um, she's written recently. And also, we want to get into some Super League Fallout reactions, all kinds of stuff to that remarkable short story. Um, But let's get to our guest. Our guest is a sports writer who has written for... ESPN, Bloomberg, Rolling Stone, The Guardian, and has been noted in Best American Sports Writing. She previously co-hosted The Lead, the Athletics Daily Podcast, and she sits on the board of directors of the Yogi Berra Museum. She has appeared on SportsCenter, Outside the Lines, CBS, CNN, and MSNBC, so at long last she can complete her career sports media grand slam <laughs> by appearing on the illustrious Jacobin Sports Show. Welcome to the program, Kavitha Davidson. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing all right. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah,
0: thank you so much for being here with us. Um, You have a number of interesting pieces um, that have appeared at The Athletic the past few months, and we want to touch on a few of them. Um, Some because I think they just have that timeless sports appeal, and some because even though you wrote them in the past, they seem especially resonant, given um, with some of what's going on in the news these days in this country and in sports. So let's start with your most recent piece, um, which was about Jackie Robinson and Major League Baseball and the, um, I guess what you'd call a, a, a longstanding failure on the part of MLB to accurately reflect and acknowledge um, Robinson's story and I think their own culpability um, in how that story has been sanitized and in some cases just warped to fit MLB's history, you had a very interesting point, I thought, in there. we know, And we know the business of MLB is always going to be working in this public relations sense and absorb everything bad that happens can be absorbed and turned into some sort of public relations. But given its corporate and conservative slants, just culturally, do you believe that there is some way that it is possible that the industry of Major League Baseball would come to grips in a more realistic and painful and meaningful way with this important part of its history? Or do you think it's always going to be kind of grist for the mill?
2: I do think that there is a capacity for Major League Baseball to reform in a, in a real and meaningful way. Um, And I think that that genuinely comes from, and maybe this is, this is probably the most idealistic thing I'll ever say, but I think that that genuinely comes from the fact that there are people who love baseball, who work in baseball, who look like you and me, and who understand what needs to change in baseball. A, a, A thing that I say a lot is that, you know, I write very critically about the institutions in sports, and a lot of people constantly accuse me of hating sports and hating white men and hating um, the things that uphold the things that I criticize. But it's not that at all. It's actually extremely the opposite. It's that I criticize these things because I love sports. I love baseball. And I see the beauty that can actually come from from these things. And I just want I want them to fulfill that I want them to live up to their promise. So I think that there are people who work in baseball right now to work specifically in Major League Baseball right now, who do have that same feeling. I also think that we can't deny that the ownership structure and the people who have the most money and the most power tend not to think the way that we do about some of these issues. So there is constantly going to be that tension, right? But it's, it's, I do, I, I think that there is a real Effort and a real desire to reform from within. And it's just a matter of how many resources and how that effort can truly come to fruition. And Jackie Robinson's legacy, I mean, first of all, the way that his legacy has been sanitized over the decades isn't just unique to Jackie Robinson. You can point to Henry Aaron is a really good example of that. Um, But it's also not unique to sports. It's not unique to baseball, right? Like people's legacies are sanitized to suit narratives of the people who are telling these stories all the time. And that's, that's really what I was trying to address with, with that column.
0: In January, we had um, a guest on Dr. Robert green um, to talk at length about um, Hank Aaron's life and his legacy. And um, that came up a lot in the discussion was how much, more rich and complicated and I think meaningful Aaron's personal and political story was, but how different forces for different reasons over time had made sure to shrink that down. And, and even after he passed, um, we talked about uh, Michael Wilbon focusing on Aaron being just such a, ge- just so humble and quiet and gentlemanly. It didn't take a lot of digging to find out, no, that's not the case um, Robinson seems to be similar. I had no idea until I read your piece, and I, th- I think this is really, really important. There's a certain, just like with Martin Luther King, there's a certain American general historical tendency that like, okay, so civil rights started when the Civil War ended, and it ended when Martin Luther King died and there was a Civil Rights Act, and, and since then everything is fine. And we know that's not the case. Um, I found it very interesting that Jackie Robinson's story tends to... the american consciousness in terms of 1947 he breaks the color barrier we can get a movie out of it this is wonderful we pat ourselves on the back we move on you wrote about later in his life long after he had been established as an icon um of two incidents that robinson had with the police one coming at the apollo theater um when a, a, a white plainclothes officer pulled a gun on him and the only reason the officer relented was that enough bystanders pointed out to him Hey, that's Jackie Robinson, and Robinson realizing, "What if I wasn't Jackie Robinson? What if I, I shouldn't was...
2: be Jackie Robinson? If I was just a black man in Harlem, this could yeah. have gone very different." Yeah. yeah,
0: you see that story, which I had never heard before, and then the story you wrote about in 1968, where Robinson is at the Brooklyn Criminal Courts and he sees ten Black Panthers and two white supporters um, accosted by over a hundred fifty police officers and firefighters, and Robinson tells the reporters the Panthers had every reason to be violent after that kind of violence. And then you find out that the FBI has a file on Robinson detailing him defending the Panthers, quote, opposition to police abuse and criticizing the police as, quote, trigger happy. I think it's really important that when you talk about Major League Baseball's responsibility to invest in a, a meaningful commitment to this fair history of the individual Robinson and what happened in the infrastructure, that these sorts of stories be told also, and understand, Jackie Robinson didn't just stand on second base and listen to slurs and get spit on and spiked and just go through his day like a robot. There was a man, a flesh-and-blood man, who suffered and suffered his entire life long after he retired. When we, when we spoke to Robert Green, we found in the Hank Aaron research, Hank Aaron, long after he retired, would never finish a drink in public because he was afraid that it might have been poisoned. Whenever a, a male person came to his house... Aaron had been trained from when his life was in jeopardy in the summer that he was passing his record. Aaron never looked at the person who was approaching him. He always looked at what might be going on in the background because he'd be, he had been taught, like, that's the danger. There were there were police that year undercover with his daughter. She was in school, in secondary school. He
2: saved the hate mail. He saved the physical yeah. letters. And as, as recently as 1997, he would talk about that. So when he died, and everyone and i understand like there's there's a need to have this kind of pastoral romanticization of of a player of an era all of that but when he died there were just so many people who were like he kept his head down. He played the uh-huh. game the right way. He endured all of, ra- like, there, there was always, like, a, a, you know, a very passive kind of acknowledgement that he endured a certain level of racism, but there was no acknowledgement that he was angry, righteously so, about that until probably the day that he passed away, and that's something that we can't also ignore, and we can't, um, we can't flatten these, these men and women that we're talking about when we look back at them retrospectively. mm
0: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. I thought the other half of that article that was fascinating is that you. I always think of Robinson as politically a pretty conservative guy in a lot of ways, right? I mean, he was a Republican, was it? Didn't he support Nixon? He,
2: absolutely. Well, so so Jackie Robinson, and I, I said this in the column. Jackie Robinson's politics are way more complicated than anyone really wants to acknowledge, and then anyone maybe has time to discuss. He was politically conservative. That doesn't mean he was necessarily a Republican. At the time, um, he did support Nixon, who was a Republican. Obviously, the dynamics between the Democratic and the Republican Party were very much shifting at the time. Um, But that doesn't mean that, you know, he was against the cause or that he was against race relations or, or anything like that. It's just not as it's not as simple as as these kind of binaries that we like to talk about. And I think that especially when you talk about civil rights figures, no black person, no LGBTQ plus person exists in a monolith. Like, that's that's not how any of these movements end up, end up gaining steam or end up happening. So the fact that Jackie Robinson can agree with a lot of what the Black Panther Party was standing for and not necessarily agree with the separatist faction of of the party and also acknowledge that he himself had had very meaningful interactions with the police. As a black man in America, no matter what your political leanings are, you probably have had some interactions with the police that are going to influence how you view them. And that he can say, you know, this is this is understandable, this is righteous. I understand where violence in reaction to violence comes from then then I think we start to unpack exactly how complicated and how important Jackie Robinson's thoughts on these issues were.
1: Yeah yeah, I mean, I, you know the other half that that I, I'm so interested in and in, um, you know in, in a bunch of your writings, but on this in particular, like Matthew said, MLB is such a conservative institution it also is subject to the same political pressures as the other institutions of American society. And there's a way in which, of the you know, Jackie Robinson encapsulates that perfectly, right? I mean, it was such a civil rights battle, integration into, you know, in, in baseball. And I wonder if you think that uh, Black Lives Matter and all of the protests of the last few years, I mean, it seems like the response has been quicker you know, more, it's been more responsive, the NBA and the WNBA and MLB has been behind, but you do see some kinds of changes. And even if they're only surface level, like I'm from Boston and the fact that they changed the name of Yawkey way Mm -hmm. back to Jersey street, because Tom Yawkey, the former owner was, uh, you know, he was, he was not a uh, progressive figure when it came to integrating baseball, you know, for many decades. I don't know if you guys have heard the Red Sox have a kind of a racist legacy.
2: Uh, but uh, the Red Sox were the last team to integrate the Yankees were the second to last team to integrate like this, this, there's absolutely this history. Yeah. Yeah. And do you think that this moment is
1: having some kind of impact on baseball or what do you think that looks like?
2: I do. I definitely do. I was pleasantly surprised when baseball, when major league baseball announced that they were moving the all-star game. Um, And that I know has been an extremely controversial (laughs) thing. You know, that's what it is. But I do think that this moment is different than what we have seen before. And frankly, I tend to come to these issues from an extremely cynical business forward perspective, which is I don't know if Rob Manfred actually has a moral grounding for this. He very well could. I think that this was a very pragmatic decision, that these are pragmatic acts that Major League Baseball and that other leagues are making to read where where we are going and where people and, and their hearts and their sentiments are going. So I think that he said, I mean, I think that they are looking at where corporate sponsors are looking and where investor pressure is coming from and where consumer pressure is coming from. And frankly, that's fine. (laughs) Like if, if all of those things are going in, in what I consider to be the right direction and that forces the hand of institutions like major league baseball or other corporate entities, I think that that's completely fine. And I I've said this also in the context of the Washington football team changing their name. Like we all know very realistically that Dan Snyder didn't just have like a come to Jesus moment about (laughs) the fact that the name of his team was racist. Um, It was literally 150 investors writing letters to Pepsi and FedEx and forcing the hand. If that's the way that we achieve progress in these institutions that are longstanding and not going anywhere, then fine. I think that that's perfectly fine.
0: Speaking of progress or lack thereof and longstanding institutions, you wrote a piece a little while ago, um, Kavitha, about... Women in sports and sports media and the just ubiquity of harassment um, all over the place. And um, I think the story, I think it broke shortly after the Jared Porter firing um, by the Mets as their very short-lived general manager. Um, there's a few a few quotes and a few points that you make in the story that I think are really resonant and, and worth highlighting and, and letting you expound upon a bit. And there's one, um, you mentioned the work of um, Britt, I hope I'm saying her last name right, Giroli. Um, who worked on a, a really excellent piece um, with Katie Strang, um, detailing Mickey Calloway's behavior um, while he was in Cleveland and, and how that carried over into his time as Mets manager. And you said that Jiroli explains how women have to balance, women in media have to balance the need to be liked with the need to be respected when it comes to building and maintaining sources. Quote, this is Giroli now speaking, the line is invisible and exhausting. And I keep thinking about, I think this is Jiroli I'm sorry. The line is invisible and exhausting, and I keep thinking about what one front office member told me in my first year. "Quote: You want to be hot enough so guys want to talk to you, but not so hot that people think you are fucking them." The more I talk to women I know in sports and in sports media, this word "exhausting" comes up all the time. And I know as a as a man, I'm not I'm not exposed to the same reality um, that women are. I know that you are, in which Rowley and Strang are talking about it sounds draining it sounds exhausting what are steps that allies you think can take that are tangibly helpful um whether it's your your, your co-workers in the media whether it's fans whether it's um, people on social media witnessing this misogyny and ugliness taking place are there are there steps that you think that are tangible that that allies can take to to create a better a better environment do you think that it's it's strictly a matter of you need the dinosaurs to die out or you need more representation um, in positions of authority. Is it all of these things? Like what, what are, what are your thoughts?
2: Well, I mean, I, I appreciate the question so much and the question itself is indicative of one of those steps. Right. Um, And I, I I do want to just give a, a huge shout out to Britt and Katie for their continued reporting on this because it's so important. I think it's, it's important when men that we work with acknowledge that, it's just different. It just is. Like everybody in any kind of media capacity gets trolls and gets terrible comments and suffers some kind of abuse or harassment. But it's just different when you're a woman. And and I think that that acknowledgement in itself, like it makes you feel seen. It also just makes you feel like you're not... Alone, You're not being gaslighted. You're not making this shit up. um, You're not making this stuff up. Sorry. (laughs) Um, And this this uh, is an adult
0: broadcast. You can curse all you want. um, And
2: and 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 that in itself is is a step. Right. But the, the more tangible thing is. I mean, one of the things that Britt and Katie have written about is that everybody saw this happening on a repeated basis as a pattern. And this is not unique to the Mets or the Indians or, or the Angels. This is not unique to any one team. This is rampant in baseball, and this is obviously rampant across sports. And when you witness something happening that might make you feel uncomfortable or might make you think that the the person in question who is being harassed is feeling uncomfortable, I think first reaching out to that person, like talking to the woman, if, you, if you're if you close enough, if you feel comfortable enough, just being like, hey, I saw this happen. Is everything OK? You know, like and and, and you know what? She may very well say everything's fine. It, it's rolling off my back. It's not worth bringing up. And, and that's that's absolutely her right. She also might say, yeah, you know, I wish he would knock it off. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But I don't really know how to say that. And offering um, offering a mechanism to do that, right? If if you want to be the conduit to report, you know, we talk about bystander intervention all the time. Um, you know, depending on how that woman feels. Um, if, 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 if you want to talk to the person who is maybe doing the harass, like there, there are very many ways that that can be addressed. Um, but I do think that that, you know, that level of allyship is extremely attainable, right? Like it's, it's very easy to do that. And it, it really just starts with recognizing. And I will say that in addition to Katie and Britt doing this incredible level of reporting, Ken Rosenthal has been there the the entire way as well. And that matters so much. First of all, someone of Ken's like stature and yeah. platform, obviously, but it also does lend, unfortunately, sometimes you need the white man in the room to lend legitimacy to this thing that you've been talking about for mm-hmm. decades. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be what's happening right now. And I think that that's extremely important. I, I'm just
1: wondering what you think um, the response has been to this around baseball, to this story. And yeah.
2: I know internally, some of the people that I have talked to one will say that they were they've known that this is a problem right sure. this was not a secret and and i think yep. the the language in Britt and katie's reporting was this was the worst kept secret in sports yeah there is finally an acknowledgement that this needs to be addressed i don't know at what level that can possibly happen like if you have if you've read Britt and katie's latest report about how the mets went about this Sandy Alderson should not still have a job. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, that's just... Mm-hmm. It is a little bit mind-boggling that he is still employed. Um, particularly, so, sorry,
0: particularly in light of the fact that the prior ownership had... Um, Jeff Wilpon in particular had mm-hmm. well-publicized issues of um, specifically misogynistically mistreating women in the workplace. Steve Cohen's had that issues at his hedge fund. Comes mm-hmm. in promising to change the culture... And you have one disaster after another between Porter and, and Calloway and, and Alderson, whose whole reason for being there is supposedly he's such a respectable, he's a former Marine, you know, sorry, I, I'm just astonished. I'm a, I'm a Mets fan and I'm astonished that like the more things change, the more they don't in a lot of ways.
2: A hundred percent. And you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, Jeff Wilpon very publicly, this is in my book, um, and and it's been reported on many times, but Jeff Wilpon very publicly was sued for firing yes. a, a high-level woman employee for having a baby out of wedlock, for being an unmarried mother. Like, like, what are we actually talking Same. about here? Same. And then when, when Steve Cohen came in, and, and hey. you're right, there is also precedent of this from Steve Cohen's time at SGA Capital, um, which was written about having rampant harassment and abuse problems and mistreatment of women, and there are multiple lawsuits still ongoing when it comes to that to that particular fund. But there was all of this rhetoric about how this is a new era, this is the dawn of a new day, and mm-hmm. certainly from the baseball side of things, that has been the case, right? Mm-hmm. Like, And I, I don't begrudge Mets fans for reveling in the fact that Steve Cohen is now – their owner and that it's not the Will Ponds and that the purse strings are opened, and, and right. you know, the sign Francisco Lindor and you're seeing the results of it on the field, but that can't distract from the fact that all of this shit is still going on in the background. Right. And it's still going on at the highest levels of the way that this operation, the way that this team is being run. And I have not seen up until this point from the team level, any real accountability on that fact. In this latest piece that Katie and Britt. Published, you know, Sandy Alderson had every excuse, um, and 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 had some pretty offensive language about the way that he he tried to basically describe describe cancel culture is a, is essentially what he was trying to do. He was like he 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 basically he made an he made an analogy between firing somebody who has been accused of harassment and capital punishment. <laughs> oh, Sandy. And just, just what are we actually talking about, right? Yeah. Um, words, words, words have meaning. So, um, <laughs> I don't, I don't really know where where the Mets can go with this um, because they haven't, they haven't gone there yet. Um, but there is certainly a lot of introspection that needs to happen over there.
0: You made a point um, near the end of this piece that I thought was especially poignant in light of some of what's um, been happening. Now in the larger society, he wrote, um, we've been having a lot of conversations recently about how to get more women into sports. And yes, we need to do a much better job of that. And we absolutely need to do a better job of getting more women of color and specifically black and Latina women into sports media. But we also need to do a better job of keeping the women who are already here. And that starts with ensuring safety. And when I thought recently about the violence, you know, from the state against uh, via the police against black black men and black women and, and and black trans individuals. And what happened recently with the Asian American and Pacific Islander community and remembering um, the disproportionate impact of COVID on communities of color, especially, and recognizing, I think, in what you're mentioning in the piece and in sports applies to the larger society in general, which is that like the system is the danger. The solution is not simply getting more faces in the system that look like you because if the system remains constant all they can do is keep it doing what it is intended to do which is to destroy these bodies disproportionately um i found that point sad and inspiring like at the same time because i think it's we it's easy sometimes to get hung up on the horror of what's happening or um or just the 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 very personal human element of the stories but to remember that there's a there's a system doing this and the system is what has to be changed.
2: Well, absolutely. And, and thank you for bringing that up. Um, I mean, we've we've seen every company under the sun, mine included, start these DNI initiatives in the last year. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, which I, I do believe are, are well-meaning and are, um, are like I think that people for the first time, especially white people, have recognized that there is a problem that needs to be fixed. Um, in in a more than surface level, I don't think that everyone knows how to quite do that. So you know, when you when you start improving hiring practices, which is obviously a part of this, you also need to look at who's leaving. You need to look at who you're letting go, who and who whose jobs are just. Not sustainable for them to keep doing this in some capacity. And if you're looking at people of color, that often means there's an over there's an outsized burden to cover race, when it shouldn't always fall on the black guy in the newsroom to cover this, right? If you look at women, that happens when it comes to gendered violence all the time as well. Um, and 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 then it, there is a real thing about um, about abuse and about harassment and how exhausting that can be, and the fact that that in itself is a deterrent from from staying in the in the long run then there are actual like structural things i'm writing a piece right now about working moms in sports and you know i talked to adia barnes um head coach Mm. of of arizona um who had this phenomenal showing in the national championship game and Mm -hmm. came like this close to a title but um but you know and and she she is a mom she gave birth Um, You know, several months ago when she was pumping at halftime and she talked about the fact that she is a head coach allows her to, with all the difficulties even, without any of the resources, still kind of navigate this. Assistant coaches who are women, more often than not, don't have the same privileges. So. She has firsthand seen women leave the industry, women coaches leave the industry because of the difficulties, because there aren't enough resources given to them in order to be women and moms and coaches. And those are all those are the secondary things that we we also need to look at about wh- when it comes to how we can maintain and strengthen diversity is acknowledging that, you know, 50 percent of the population needs some like some of these accommodations and that's totally fine. And and so that's why, you know, when I say that you need to look at who's leaving and in addition to who's coming in, like those numbers can't be net numbers, you know, like okay. that's that's how that's really how you need to approach this. And And that speaks to a lot more Structural and systemic issues than just a surface level. Who are we hiring? Kind of thing.
0: We had a guest. I just wanted. I just wanted to mention really quick. We had a guest, um, Sydney O'Mary a couple of weeks ago, who played um, college basketball and, and was talking about. Um, and it's it's interesting in light of what you just said about this. It's it's important not just who's coming in, but who's leaving. Barnes and Dawn Staley were were very highlighted as. Hey, it's the, in fi- the final four, we have two black coaches. This is great progress. Mary found in her research that from 2012 to 2020, the percentage of black women coach black women coaches in, in women's college basketball went from 21% to 24%. It's completely statistically insignificant, but mm-hmm. you'll see the commercials, you'll see the promos like, hey, look what we did. But like you're saying, it, it really, again, this gets back to that issue of it's the system. It's not just these. It's great for these individuals that this happens, and of course, that that can be celebrated. But that in and of itself is not a comment on the system. I was gonna say
1: it's the motherhood penalty. It's the same thing you see in all sorts of industries, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what what is paid parental leave like for for basketball coaches? You know, right. I, genuinely, that's a question. Are there or childcare?
2: Well, Um, and 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 that's the thing is that this isn't unique to sports. This is, and and this has been my approach to my writing is that some of the a lot of the issues that I talk about in sports are really just broader things that we see in every other industry. And and getting people to pay attention to these through the lens of sports is just one one method. But you're, Mm -hmm. I mean, you're absolutely right. Like one of the things that Adia and I also talked to Amy Rodriguez, I talked to Holly Rowe. Um, one of one of the things that everybody talked about was you know especially in a bubble context there was just no childcare. There was nowhere to put their kids when they had to actually coach, you know, and that's ridiculous. Like we do, especially when it comes to mothers and I'm not a mother and I don't foresee myself being one, but like, especially when it comes to mothers, we just expect this to be a given for women. We expect this to be work that they're going to do. Um, and and it's part of the social contract, but part of the social contract should also then be accommodation for that. Right. Um, and, 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 and we just we just don't see that in industry and it's it's so easy to do is the thing like the things that people are asking for are proper proper facilities to change and breastfeed like don't stick them in the bathroom you know that's disgusting yeah, yeah. right yeah. um <laughs> Having a childcare facility, a playroom for, for, for moms who are are players or coaches or anything like that. Like these, and these are not particularly expensive things to go about. Also, people always bring up the money thing, um, especially when it comes to the NCAA. But frankly, you know, these are, these are rounding errors when it comes to the expenses. So, um, it, it really just comes down to, I mean, one of the things that Holly Rose said in, in that National Championship Game broadcast was, we need to normalize this conversation. And I think that that's absolutely right. Like, we just need to have this conversation to the point where it's it's a given that women are mothers, but it's not a given that they should do that without accommodations or they should do that for free, you know?
0: Yeah. yeah. Kamita, you wrote a piece um, a little while ago about, I think earlier in April, um, about violence against the Asian-American and Pacific Islander community. And there's a point you made in it that I, I wanted to talk to you about. You made a point that one of the strange things about this rise in anti-AAPI hate crime rates is that the rise is coming at a time when reported hate crimes overall are dropping. And you mentioned a, st- uh, a stat that overall hate crime in 2020 dropped 7%, but anti-Asian hate crime went up basically 150 percent and you mentioned one possible reason for this is that there could be many more that go unreported because um there's language barriers to take into account there's many a a wide diversity of languages spoken in the communities that may not always be translation options available but then you also mentioned in your piece that there's a you say there's a quote the unprovoked and seemingly random nature of many of the attacks And, and you mentioned in San Francisco and New York City, Chinatown and in Texas, all these just impersonal, you know, usually violent crime, you know, we know is, is committed between people who have some kind of pre-existing relationship. That is not the case here. There's something extremely bizarre and disturbing about one particular type of hate exploding and for no apparent reason besides the obvious racism of it. What led you to this story in the first place? What, what, What drew you to this topic?
2: Well, so I mean, we we just relaunched our culture vertical at the Athletic, and and that's the role that I left my podcast to to go to go do. I had just seen this trend, and you know, frankly, I saw everybody talking to Jeremy Lin about this, and Jeremy Lin has extremely smart things to say about this, but I didn't see a lot of deeper analysis or a lot of just asking asking people who weren't jeremy what they what they think of this how this is affecting the community how this is affecting specifically the community in sports right so i did i i wanted to talk to people who were in sports also because i think the part of this is very much a perception problem and i say this as an indian american so i consider myself part of the aapi community we are not thought of as being sports people <laughs> We're not really considered when it comes to sports fans. We're definitely not considered to be athletic. And when we want to work in this industry, when we want to be part of this industry, we're very much seen as unicorns. And and that, that really does derive from this whole model minority myth, right? And, and I think that's very much a part of where a lot of this violence and a lot of this racism is coming from. There is a perception that if you are Asian American, you probably over-index in income, you're probably highly educated, all of that. And some of those stereotypes absolutely ring true, but they're they're very surface level. And I, and I said this in the piece also, if you break down these specific countries of origin, the specific ethnic groups from which the AAPI community comes from there's you know the taiwanese and the indian american community are are very high earning and then everybody else is poor basically Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. so 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 that but that ends up being that that perception ends up Flattening how people view us as a community, right? And Vicky, Ng, who I talked to, um, basically said we need people to see us as more than just doctors and engineers. And I think that that's extremely important, you know. And I went to a math and science high school. I like very identify with that sentiment. My mother is a neuropathologist. My dad actually works in criminal justice reform, which is a whole other thing. But, <laughs> um, but like, I was very much expected to go into math or science. I was expected to be a doctor or I was expected to be an engineer or maybe go to business school, something like that. And, it, you know, a, a lot of circumstances conflated for me to realize that I'm a, a, a good writer and that that's what I wanted to do with my life. But, you know, I think that because of that, because of the lack of understanding of the multitudes. You know, like I said before, like the black community, the LGBTQ+ plus community, any community that's ever fought for civil rights doesn't exist in a monolith. The Asian American community doesn't exist in a monolith also. And I think that that perception is very much what is contributing to this rise of 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 racism and of hate crimes. And also just the I mean, it, this is happening to elders, right? At a at a rate that that's extremely disturbing and that we're not we're not seeing among other hate crime incidences. And so there's there's also a perception of a vulnerability or a weakness, and that also has to do with notions of how Asian Americans are depicted in Hollywood, and and again notions that you know we can't be athletic or strong or anything like that. So that that was what led me to want to explore this a little bit more and try and just go a little bit deeper. And and sure, yeah, sometimes there is a sometimes I want to write about something and I'm going to find the sports angle to do it. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> We mentioned this before, um, when you, you you reminded us that words really do matter, and I'm talking about flattening and, and scapegoating, um, that another explanation for the rise in um, this particular violence against AAPI peoples is um, the emergence of the coronavirus, and that there was this very ugly propagated myth, and, and perpetuated by the former president and other people using terms like China virus and Wuhan flu. Um, but just like when we, when we were mentioning before, I um, can't remember now if it was on the air or off the air, but talking about um, the Derek Chauvin verdict and recognizing that this is an individual instant in a much larger systemic question. And when we talk about um, this violence in the community here, it's exacerbated unquestionably by the fact that you have, you know, people in positions of power and influence using obvious, they're not even dog whistles, they're just obvious racist language. But when you recognize that that's not creating something, that's stirring up something that um, you went into in, in your piece very nicely, I thought you dove into that this is as American as, as almost any other form of racism. There's a history for it, there's a shape to it, there's an evolution to it. This has been going on in, in, in this country alone for the majority of its history and what we're seeing now seems like kind of a new, maybe especially in light of China um, rising up as a superpower, you see just this this real explosion of hysteria, kind of like a yellow fever two
2: Yeah, I think it was important. Like Vicky Vicky Wen, who I who I talked to, um, said obviously we can point to very specific language from former President Trump about directly referring to the China virus and the Wuhan flu and the Kung flu and that kind of thing that obviously stoked this racism, but it didn't create it. And that's really important mm-hmm. to, to acknowledge. And that's, that's the same with every other kind of racism that the past administration stoked, right? Every nefarious aspect, everything that we saw galvanizing and and, and culminating in the, the January 6th insurrection was a seat was, was, something that had been stoked from a seed that had already been planted, from something that very much existed and might be foundational to to our country and that we've been trying to root out. This notion that particularly Chinese immigrants. But now, you know, we can expand that to Asian immigrants because people people don't delineate, frankly. Right. Um, but this notion that Chinese immigrants are dirty and disease spreading and that Asians, you know, get tropical like foreign viruses and bring them over here is hundreds of years old and has existed in America for, since then. So this was, and even if if people aren't necessarily aware of that in the forefront of their mind, these are definitely notions that exist somewhere in in the american psyche. So i thought that it was important to acknowledge the role that absolutely you know fanning those flames plays and that's not to absolve the former administration or the former yep. president of any of of responsibility in in contributing to this crisis but that this doesn't just go away when Donald Trump goes away and sure. that's you know cuz that's that's really the point here is that these are deeper things that we need to root out and that we need to we need to have honest discussions about we need to have honest discussions about where they come from and why they're still why why these notions still exist and why they're allowed to persist and they will long after we recover from from the last four years.
1: I mean, one of the things that's so scary is that, I I mean, there's a lot going on, obviously, and some different dynamics to these attacks. One of the things I I find particularly frightening is that some of the violence is coming from the poorest people, right? You know, people who are oppressed themselves, right? You know, and that's a real dynamic that uh, it says something about, probably the nature of the social crisis in american society right mm-hmm. and the the politics around yeah i mean competition for you know whatever for for uh, scarce resources in cities but also that larger cultural pattern of that you're talking about yeah
2: yeah i mean we this is an uncomfortable fact, right? That we we do have to talk about um, is that not all of this racism is coming from white people, right? Yep. Um, and 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 that's that's the reality of it. I think that you know we can we can talk about where that comes from. I think one major reason for that is that we tend to not have particularly nuanced conversations about the different types of racism that we all experience, and we just kind of get into a comparison, like the oppression Olympics kind of thing. Yep. Um, but you know one of the things that people that I interviewed for that piece said was you know we we can never and 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 first of all it absolutely needs to be acknowledged that we in the Asian American community absolutely are racist like like Indian Americans I can only speak for my own particular sect of this community but Indian Americans tend to be very anti black and that is something that we have to we have to confront as as a community but you know one of the things that that Vicky Won said when I when I talked to her was We can never experience the same type of racism because for the most part, all of us came here, all of our ancestors came here from the Asian American community of our own volition. We chose to come here. So we have a different buy-in to what America means and to what we can do and what America can do for us than people who were forced to come here. That's a very... Important fact and reality that we have to acknowledge. That said, that also means that does not mean that we cannot experience racism. We just do experience it in different ways, yeah. and it's those different ways that are that are so difficult for people to get their minds around. But they are mostly perpetuated by those who currently still exist in power, yeah. right? I mean, the way that the way that um, supremacy is upheld is to continue those kinds of divisions and the allyship that we have been seeing, and we've seen it so much in sports in the last few months like we have seen LeBron James and Jason Tatum and and you know go down the line of of very prominent black celebrities and athletes and and figures who have shown solidarity with the API community. And in turn, I think the hope is that the AAPI community will show solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement as yeah. well. Um, that is really what is important, is acknowledging the common ground, acknowledging our common humanity, and acknowledging, like I said, the very different ways that we all experience racism. Like, I will never truly understand what what the threat of constant stop and frisk feels like i just i won't i know that i'm probably you know i'm i'm assumed i remember when i was (laughs) when i was in college i went to my bodega i grew up in washington heights i went to my bodega and i tried to buy a lucy a cigarette and they thought i was a cop (laughs) like you know so (laughs) (laughs) so so i understand that like i will never truly get that at the same time you know i i I do experience a level of targeting. I do experience a level of racism. Sure. I've been called a terrorist to my face. You know, like there are, there are different things that we all experience and we can't get into, we can't get into the, you know, the conversation of, of which is worse, right? Because all racism is bad. But I mm-hmm. think that we are getting to a point where we can acknowledge that the original sin of America is the worst, which is slavery. And that going forward from there, we can acknowledge that Every type of racism that we experience is, is, is bad, but also serves to uphold white supremacy. And that's really what needs to be dismantled.
0: Vitha, we are loving the work that you're doing at The Athletic. Do you have any pieces that are coming out soon that you want to let the audience uh, know about or any other projects you have?
2: I'm trying to do a mix of... really important and impactful work and also just some fun stuff because sports and culture are fun, right? Like like (laughs) sometimes we can kind of forget that, right? Um, So I do have this piece coming out about working moms and the difficulties um, surrounding that. I I also have a piece about um, girl breakdancers because breakdancing is going to be an Olympic sport yes, in 2024. It is. Ah, yes, it is. Um, and so I've, I've interviewed a few current girl breakdancers. Uh, they're called B-girls. Um, that's what you know, I I have had to kind of check myself when I keep wanting to call them women because these are like 25 year olds, but you know. <laughs> um, but um and but I also did interview one of the pioneers, um, an old an OG woman in breakdancing who very much wants people not to forget where this comes from. That breakdancing is something that was born of hip hop, that was born of the Bronx, and and that was born of black and Puerto Ricans, basically in in, in the city. And now it's it's this global thing, Red Bull is a sponsor there you know there are a ton of like kids in like russia and japan who are doing this but but not to forget where this comes from while acknowledging that you know this being an olympic sport while weird like i haven't like <laughs> everyone acknowledged that that's weird right uh-huh. like they, how this is going to be scored all of that but that they didn't need their own legitimizing. And that was really interesting to hear come from some of the, the forefathers and the foremothers of, of breakdancing it was like, you know, the mainstreaming of this is great. We have some concerns about that. But at the same time, we didn't need the Olympics to tell us that what we were doing was meaningful. Mm-hmm. So uh, those, are, those are the couple of things that I'm working on right now. Nice. Very exciting.
0: Well, I want to thank you for um, giving your time and talking to us about your work in this interview you can find kavitha on twitter at kavitha davidson k-a-v-i-t-h-a davidson kavitha thank you very much for joining us and we hope to have you on again in the future at some point
2: absolutely thank you guys so much that was great thank
0: you Yeah, yeah 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 that was super cool so jonah the biggest story in sports uh for a while now of course has been the New York Knicks 7 game. I mean, sorry, the Super League. um, The Super League super drama. Um, What a span of days it has been in the world of European football. So many things to talk about in this story, Jonah. Being a former writing professor, I'm going to take it from a rhetorical point of view and just point out, as I mentioned to you yesterday and as we texted, I was so taken with the English press talking about this like it's Star Wars or like it's the 13 colonies happening again. Everything is about rebels and rebellion and I'm like wow, like they were really I have never seen them that stirred up about anything in my life.
1: You know, this makes me want to do a whole like Mike and the Mad Dog stick. like I want to yell
0: or something I've had I've had Chris <laughs> Russo in mind for everything I
1: feel all day today. Well, Matthew you know, yeah uh <laughs> So, let me say, I thought you you were going to say the biggest story in sports is the hot start by the Boston Red Sox, first place in the American (laughs) League. Not that we really give a shit. Uh, You know, maybe some of the listeners do, but even I've started watching. But, of course, it's all been taken over by this Super League shit. And I just saw uh, John Henry, owner of the Red Sox and of Liverpool via his, uh, you know, the sports ownership group, FSG, Fenway Sports Group, deliver a two and a half minute videotaped apology where, my Lord, that man looks, he looks like a robot dressed in L.L. Bean, always. But he has (laughs) never done anything quite like this. And essentially what he said is, we didn't realize people were going to be so pissed. You know, like, in which case... uh, what are you doing? I mean, what what are these people doing that they did not realize that the fan... They announced this thing that they're all going to drop out of, you know, a drop break with UEFA, brought, drop out of the Champions League, threaten the entire structure of domestic and international football in Europe. And they were like, oh, we had no idea people were going to be this mad. And when they realized, they dropped it within 48 hours. I mean... Who is advising these people? That's what I want to know. People are like, oh, well, they're evil. On the evil-stupid continuum, I think they're more on the stupid tip, given the way this went down. Evil, yes, but but stupid,
0: uh, just above evil. Part of me has wondered um, if this is all the big, you know, kind of ornate like, new Coke scandalous ad where the Champions League is actually behind all this, it right, was up never really going to be, yeah, just like, you know what, we'll get rid of Coke, oh, you missed it, here it comes, like, yeah. because I, I don't believe that they're that stupid, yeah. Um. because it's not like the story broke out of nowhere, there's have been there been smoke for months about this sort of thing, Liverpool and United have already, it's been known that they had explored this possibility, or at least the, the possibility of the possibility in the past, so there's no way that they're this stupid, I'm struck Maybe as an American sports fan who is used to any time a team or a league wants to do something, they do it. I'm struck by the fact that the European soccer fan seems to have gotten what they, what they wanted and that all the, that these, these dozen powerful companies just basically got stopped in their tracks.
1: Can we, should we just explain what happened to people, basically?
0: Go ahead. Explain what's going on.
1: Here's the basic story. The way that the, that European football works is that there are domestic competitions, right? There are domestic leagues, like the Premier League, uh, La Liga, Serie A in Italy. Right. And um, in all of those leagues, they're the top of a domestic football pyramid so that the the, the teams who finish the worst every year in the, in the domestic league are relegated down to a lower league. And the teams that win the lower league are are... Uh, promoted up to the top league, yeah, and it goes all the way down to, you know, five or six levels, basically, right? And at the very, very top, there are a few teams that consistently dominate, but they also have to compete not just for the domestic title, but uh, the people who finish at the top of of the domestic league are allowed to play in the Champions League, the European Champions League, every year. So the top four teams in the in the Premier League play in the Champions League the next year. The next four play in a slightly lower European league called the Europa League, yeah? This has been the the model for several decades now. There used to be a slightly different version of it. But playing in the Champions League is super important for these teams because it guarantees them big money and international exposure, yeah? If they don't play, if they don't make it into the top four, they lose out on a ton of money. I think the... You know, what, the the winner of the Champions League wins, gets something, well, a little over 100 million euros. Liverpool last year got... 100 million euros? Yeah, I think
0: so. I know Liverpool last year, even not winning it, got 70 million um, out of that. It's big money. United got 40-something the last time they were there. Even if you don't win, it's worth it. The teams,
1: the very top teams are, let's say, pissed. They've lost out on a bunch of money due to COVID. And they were already frustrated because they're not guaranteed that money every year. And they're like, we are who everyone around the world wants to watch. So they tried to create a league in which 15 teams would be guaranteed a spot every single season in this European Super League. And then you would, the rest of the, all the other teams in Europe would have to compete over five spots, basically. So every week it would be Real versus Liverpool or versus Man City Mm -hmm. or Juventus. Uh, and, um, you know, everyone else who was left out of this obviously was very upset. It really limits their opportunity to compete their way to break into the top tier teams of European football. But for the teams that were going to be part of it, the promise payoff was so big. I mean, they got J.P. Morgan to guarantee what, like four and a half million? Five, five billion. They
0: they would have gotten, every team would have gotten 300 million. Every year. Joining just in the first year at least, yeah, for joining. Yeah,
1: yeah. so, and now what's happening is there there was this revolt everywhere, particularly in English football, and it forced all the English teams first to drop out. Then two of the Spanish teams dropped out, right, Atletico and Barcelona. And so it's a dead letter at that point, right? I mean, you Mm. know, Uh, What's fascinating, if you follow European English football Twitter, is that people now are like, you know who sucks? You know who's behind it all is the fucking Americans. It's all these these American team owners, billionaires. They're like, we want that Middle Eastern oil money. Like Man City and Chelsea were apparently the most hesitant because their owners are like, what do we give a shit? We own entire countries. You know, we own the world's (laughs) oil supply. That, this doesn't mean anything to us. We don't need this money, basically. Uh, and so they were the first to drop out. So now all the fans are like, "Give us, give us, you know, those petro dollars." F the
0: Americans.
1: And yep. I'm kind of like, okay, yeah, fair enough. let will yeah. do it. You know, <laughs> who can blame we're you? We're losing. We're
0: losing to Abu Dhabi. Yeah, yeah. Like the Global <laughs> polarizations. <laughs> exactly.
1: So here's some interesting factoids that I, uh, they when you so there were polls that were done on how the different fan bases felt about this. Here's okay. what's interesting. The right. only fan base that was majority supportive, guess which of the clubs? I want oh, the to English guess. clubs or of all the clubs? No, no, total. Of all of them. Of all the 12, what were going to be founding members? Oh, an
0: Ars- it's maybe like Arsenal or something. No, no. All the
1: English clubs were at the bottom. I think Arsenal Sands were at the bottom of the bottom, which. Oh,
0: I- these are fans. These are. F- oh, yeah, okay, yeah, okay, the okay, fans. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the the, the club... One fan base,
1: a majority of the fan base, was supportive in the polling. It was about 50-50, but, like but I saw Re- uh Real was second Real? at about 40%, 40%, 40%. Real was second.
0: Yep. It's not... It's It's got to be an Italian... Is it an Italian team?
1: Yes, it's an Italian... Getting warm.
0: Is it Juventus?
1: It is Juventus, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Juventus, in which uh, the most hated team in Italian, maybe in all of European football, run uh, uh, up until now by the son of the the great and evil founder of Fiat, the car company, Agnelli, right? Who just resigned. Right. I mean, right, right, one of the right. early casualties of this thing. Yes. Uh, resigned yes. as the president of the board. And the symbol of Italian capitalism, you know, during its... It's heyday and it's golden age, right? It was fiats. The it was the the counterpart during the 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 great strikes of the '70s. They, you know, Juventus was winning football championships, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, anyway, it's just fascinating. So they were the only team whose fan base was essentially supportive. Uh, Real was second, and then all the English clubs were at the bottom. I mean, no one in English football was supportive of this, basically at all, yeah. which. Also is interesting because some of those clubs, I got to say, I mean, this would have guaranteed Tottenham a place in the... the I mean, the amount of money that was going to come in was going to yeah. be so big. Tottenham was now going to be competing every year with the biggest clubs in the world. And they're still kind of on that, just on that second tier. Uh, and yeah, but still their fan base obviously did not want this. Yeah.
0: I was I was stunned that... Um, <laughs> I was stunned by a lot of things in this story. I was stunned by, by, Arsenal, ever pulling out because this is probably their best chance to reclaim their position as a soccer superpower because it ain't happening on the pitch. I was struck by that. I was struck by how quickly big name players and coaches Pep Guardiola, um, yep. Kevin De Bruyne, I believe Jordan Henderson, you're uh, in Luke Klopp. Shaw, you're in Klopp. How how emphatically anti. Um, Super League, they all were in direct opposition to their clubs. That was striking to me. I was also very. Stri- I was so. There's just, there's things that 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 crack me up about this. One being the the language of self aggrievement from from the UEFA people. I saw some from the Spanish <laughs> league who are like dicks. like like Such dicks. like like, yeah. they're, like they're this little Saturday afternoon little league trying to compete with these vocal, these global behemoths, and fucking, so I kept seeing the word cartel throw around, which killed me, because when financial, and this pissed me off as a Man City fan, even though I, do, it's not like I expect that Man City is a humanitarian enterprise, but financial fair play was instituted in part so that clubs like Manchester City and um, Paris Saint-Germain and others and others would not crash the shop, would not be able to rise to the the position of entrenched power that you know United and Real and, and clubs like that occupy. City was was directly a target of that. And we're almost you know, they've been sanctioned, they were almost um suspended by UEFA, they were able to win uh an appeal. So these same clubs, and now they're expanding the Champions League, not because the viewing public is telling them, I want to see the fifth place team from the Bundesliga. I need to see more of that. Like no one is saying yeah. that. But so the first opportunity that City get to, like and I know they were one of the last two teams, but whatever they signed, that they would decide, let's get into this close. I mean, and it's very interesting as an American fan to see the unfairness of, like the Brit, the 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 European complaints about how can you possibly have this American system of competition where there's no relegation. It's very jarring to see what you would, and I, I like relegation. I would, I think, I would like to see it. In American sports, because I I think it's more, a bit more merit, merit, merit,
1: meritocratic. Yeah, there we go. Meritocratic.
0: I'm I love the fact that that Chelsea and Manchester City are like leading the light brigade away from this horrible development. I love that, like the reasons you gave are the reality, but I just love that the historical record will reflect that it was Abramovich and Abu Dhabi's teams that. Took the moral high ground. Now, just and, to and, say, you know, the Light
1: Brigade was wiped out, you know, during the Crimean War. So there's got to be a better analogy we could, you know, I, I'm yeah, hopeful in, in that this of, will be. In light of <laughs> City
0: still being alive in the Champions League, I should not have used that. I should not have used that analogy at all. But I love, so So I'm reading all these articles about, and, and you're saying like English Soccer Twitter and European Soccer Twitter about about this violation of this this. You know, fundamental competitive spirit—that is the the nature of European man. And I'm thinking, like, the Premier League has existed since 1992 because yep. tradition meant so much of a of a nothing that when there was a chance to make some money, here comes the Premier League. Yeah, can you when explain? You, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I'm I'm not entirely fluent with like exactly what the breakdown is, like exactly yeah. what the, the first division from. No, but they we broke
1: away from the old First Division for a big television deal. That's what it was. Yeah, it was a the short The top five crap. teams but, at the time, yeah.
0: Yeah, so we have that. We have literally – so if you imagine, like, my daughter the other day wanted to um, – we drove by a girl who had, like, a lemonade stand on the side of the road. And and I was thinking of this, like, the champions so – UEFA is, is literally, like, diluting the lemonade. Like, they're adding – they want to add more to Those are their – some of the reforms they're adding more teams to the Champions League so they're literally like diluting their lemonade in front of you while they're telling you like how amazing their lemonade is and how like historically important it is while they're watering it down like right in front of you yeah. the vitriol about that the, the the fact that like these are the these are the powers that be that wanted financial fair play Ed Woodward I love all the people who went down for this I love that years of ineptitude years of ineptitude could not take down Ed Woodward. But this one decision, which you know was not Ed Woodward's decision. This came from above his head. He but was the Manchester he,
1: United president, right? Who yeah, just resigned he, yes. the day that it fell apart. Within hours. He takes the
0: fall for it. If you yeah. have seen Goodfellas and you remember the character of Maury, who sells the wigs. And Maury, <laughs> near the end of the film, I don't want to spoil it for you. But Ed, Ed Woodward, if you, if you know Maury from Goodfellas, that's oh my Ed God. Woodward. Um, It doesn't turn out well for Maury. It doesn't. Woodward has a chance to turn out better. Arsene Wenger made an interesting point. Um, He said, quote, I must say the biggest paradox in all of this was the English clubs. England voted for Brexit to master their own destiny. England has the strongest league in the world. By signing these documents, they were destroying the Premier League. Unbelievable. There's all I can think. I'm struggling to make sense of this proposal because when you saw the the sanctions that have been discussed and I guess there's some questions about how much is legally enforceable but like when you see that UEFA and FIFA are saying like if you play in the super league as a player you're ineligible for the world cup um you're ineligible for these other tournaments and and the there was there was talk of the premier league potentially um these clubs might be expelled from this year's tournaments um for the champions league they might be kicked out of the league like all, all these things Um, Wolves, by the way, Wolverhampton Wolves did a very funny post in 2019. They finished seventh in the league. Yeah, yeah. They they had a post re-anointing themselves as the champions of that league. Um, Behind the top six
1: teams that were about to get kicked out. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Behind the the so-called big six. So it's hard for me to understand if the motivation was anything other than this big, massive, like... And I think these people are rich enough to do it if you can get a $5 billion loan from JP Morgan for your startup, then I'm thinking like they had to know there's going to be an enormous reaction. And I think like with, with, with you think of interleague baseball, like the first year, 1997, when the Mets played the Yankees, it was like the world was coming to an end. It was the biggest. I remember the game. It was Dave Malicki. He threw a shutout. It was like, it was like a world series game. It was incredible. And now I'll see like, Oh, the Mets play the Yankees next week. Eh it's been 25 years, it's, it's oversaturation of, of what had been a novelty. Yep. Watching Man City play Real Madrid is going to be very exciting if they meet in the Champions League final because of the stakes. But I don't think you can have a league with these teams playing each other all the time without no without the, the founders understanding. It's going to get oversaturated very quickly. Is it that much of... Are they, are they large enough to have... That kind of ability to make that kind of a money grab, or like you know what, we're gonna take this economic boost for a couple years, and you know what, fuck it, they need us anyway. They need us, so we'll come back when you know when this well runs dry.
2: Yeah,
0: I mean,
1: basically, they were like, they said, look, everyone around the world wants to see Manchester United play Real, right? Yeah. Uh, Real plays ninety nine percent of its games. No one outside of Spain gives a shit about, right? You know, which is true. Maybe not ninety nine percent. But there's a few, there's El Clasico with Barcelona, when they play Atletico, maybe one or two other domestic matches, and then what happens in the Champions League. And basically they were like, we don't play these big games enough. Now we're going to play them every week. And for the English teams, and Arsene Wenger is right. I mean, the Premier League basically said, if you do this, you're out, right? Mm -hmm. I think these clubs were betting. We are so big. There is no... English football without us, they can't kick us out, right? I mean, what are they going to do? Uh, what is a top-flight English football league without without these six teams, yeah. right? So they thought they were going to be able, e- either in the Premier League or in a new organization, to maintain some kind of domestic league structure while doing this. And look, uh, it's true. All the other teams in English football, I mean, even the, the other, the kind of s- second, third-level teams mm-hmm. – their whole goal is to beat the top teams, right? Their fans, all they care about every year is beating and finishing above. Yeah. Not all they care about, but, right? I mean, it's oh, like... Everton wants they to beat, beat Yeah, they want to beat Liverpool. They want to beat Manchester City. They want to beat Chelsea. Those are the games everyone, um, you know, gears up for. So it's certainly they have a level of power. What they were not... So I think they were prepared for the threats, for the, right? And, and they were going to say, look... There's there's something true and real here, which is football has to probably generate more more revenue somehow, right? Because of COVID and all the losses, which trickle down through the leagues, right? And the teams uh, and you know that they're they could stand to figure out a way to have more matches between the big clubs. Yeah, I mean that's probably true. If you could figure out a way to do that, that would be helpful. And I and I don't know what the answer is. But I think they were prepared for all the threats, for all the – and they were going to play chicken with UEFA and with FIFA, and they were going to say, you are not going to be able to ban our players from the World Cup because there is no World Cup without our players, right? Right, You cannot ban us from domestic leagues because you have – what they were not prepared for was the the intensity of the internal revolt. Players, just like you said, players, coaches, fans – I mean, literally Liverpool fans were protesting. I talked to people who were like, "I've been a fan of this club my whole life. <laughs> I'm done yeah. if this happens." Chelsea,
0: Chelsea was all around Stamford Bridge. The fans were all out protesting. <laughs> there were police out there.
1: I, it was just incredible to and you're like, "Wow, however much I care about you know basketball and I care." About,
0: <laughs> you
1: know, a lot. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the, the connection. Uh, You know, the the place of English football in English society is incredible. And I got to say that uh, this should open up an argument, by the way, for the poor, benighted, devastated English left to make, right, about corporate power, about democratization of Mm -hmm. not just of culture, but of, you know, of, of money, of society, right? I mean, there's a real argument to make here about why are these billionaires... Uh, get, get to make all the decisions about our lives and how we uh, now I you know I, <laughs> I it's not going to solve the problems of English politics definitely not but, you know politics in the UK in general but uh, there is an argument a point to be made here about that right
0: there is there's something to be said for the obvious and, and it, it we can do another hour and a half podcast to check yeah, we this could... question, but like the obvious power of what people will accomplish when you touch them somewhere that they actually care about. There's no, a lot of the traps, I think that that happen with organizing and politics and, and progressivism, like a lot of the traps that, that that can fall into sports just cuts right through it. Like when, when people really do care about something, you don't see the, you don't see the division. Um, Despite the fact that, that those divisions continue to exist for whatever moment it takes for the, the sporting issue to resolve itself there's no division like it was in fact it was the opposite of fragmentation you have now like chelsea fans and united fans and city fans and liverpool and for some god only knows reason the two north london teams that are somehow straggling along um with all these people Um, do you feel like
1: jose Mourinho was the real loser in all of this
0: i really do and there was a very good i was glad somebody hit on it at, at the telegraph in an article that the irony of Mourinho now falling so far that he is – the day that he's fired, it's not even a story. Like, I I didn't know what had happened for a bit. I kept scrolling down and was like, oh, Mourinho got – and, like, I was invested in the story. But, like, Mourinho – and I have to say, like, I am not – like, my my sports mother tongues are baseball and basketball – Soccer yep. is a language that I learned much later. I have an accent with it. Like, it's not my thing. However, even I know enough to understand that if you are a Tottenham hotspur and you have this tradition, I think the way United does also with a bit of a swashbuckling like positive football, Jose Mourinho is not the person like you better off bring in Manuel Pellegrini or or oh, the guy who used to coach at Blackpool. I can't think of his name now. There's a million people you hire. You don't hire... You bring in Arsene Wenger. You don't bring in Jose Mourinho and have him immediately alienate Ali, um, other players that he's had. And 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 it's funny how much success, you know, that, that old aphorism about deodorant and winning. Mourinho is doing the same crap. He did the same stuff he always does. He alienates his players... He doesn't take blame for anything. Um, right. he's hilarious. I think he's I think he's one of the funniest coach or managers I've ever seen, just in terms of fucking with people's heads. But I mean, he's, what a he's, genuine he's asshole. <laughs> he is a total asshole. But he's hilarious. He says so many like like there's not there was a game in 2014. You probably remember this. Um Liverpool put this unexpected run together. Um, and they were competing with City with with, with yeah, City yeah. for the no title. One t- no
1: one, you no one talks about that. All right, you know that what a bad memory.
0: <laughs> go ahead. So, go ahead. if you remember, Chelsea was playing Liverpool late yeah, that nice. year in game Yes, needed. I remember. And people hey. thought Chelsea would. They didn't. They didn't like need the win. Um, and Mourinho showed up in the game. famously or infamously like not shaven, wearing kind of like sweat, like totally playing pot, like just looked like. I'm in and then I'm out and I'll go like to Denny's or IHOP. And Chelsea play a brilliant game and they win the game and the famous slip that we won't talk about. Steven Um,
1: Gerrard famously slips the greatest Liverpool player possibly ever, right? You know, just for our non-soccer fans. Go Go ahead.
0: And just I just always remember like Mourinho when you needed him like when when your opponent was playing a Mourinho team, you were you were always happy because they were gonna They were going to be a problem. Like you never wanted to have to beat a Mourinho team to get somewhere because they were always tricky. And then over time, it just – and someone wrote a very good article at The Ringer about the period where Mourinho's Real played uh, Guardiola's Barcelona Barcelona. four times in 18 days. And after that, like Mourinho was really never – he was never the same. Um, His aura of invincibility was kind of stopped.
1: Yeah, he was one of the great managers of the 2000s and then the 2010s. Yes. We've seen some declining returns. Yeah. And what was he doing taking this Tottenham job which uh yeah, the the amount of ego, yeah. It's a
0: big wow. name. It's got to be all ego because I mean he's coached half the half the big six. Chelsea, Tottenham, yeah. United, Real, Porto, who did he coach in Italy? Um but a big club there to Inter maybe. Yeah, Just,
1: yeah, yeah. He was at Inter. Yeah, he won he won Serie A twice. Yeah, right.
0: yeah. He's got to coach the big teams. And I think, you know, he's never going to coach at Liverpool. He's never going to coach at Arsenal after what he said about Wenger. And I don't see Man City ever. After. So he's he's kind of run out of big clubs. He's not going to go to Barcelona. There's not many places after Spurs. There's not many places left for him to go that are big, you know, that, that already exist as big teams. So,
1: yeah, I mean, he's done with top-flight English football. I, I would think say. so.
0: I would think so. But he'll he'll turn up somewhere. He'll muck up something for someone. Yeah. Anyway, we could go on and on and on. We could, but we're going to save our energy for next week. I want to uh, thank our guest today, Kavitha Davidson of The Athletic. Um, again, you can find her on Twitter, at Kavitha Davidson, K-A-V-I-T-H-A. Uh, Our producer is Connor Gillies, the birthday boy. If you see Connor Gillies and and know him, and that second part is important, you can wish him a happy birthday. Um, (laughs) Please remember to follow the Jacobin Sports Show on Twitter at Jacobin Sports J-A-C-O-B-I-N, and email any thoughts or questions to us at JacobinSports at gmail.com. Jonah, I am excited to tell you I have a piece coming out tomorrow looking at your Boston Celtics. Trying to answer the question, have they been legitimately hot, or have they just been picking on weak teams? And what's the answer? Do I have to? Are you going to make me wait? I'm gonna I'm gonna make you wait.
1: Brutal, um, brutal. That's because I, I know that you insult them is what's happening, and you are afraid to tell me. You know, you say
0: negative things,
1: and uh, I. I
0: will give you a hint. I will give you a hint. You you may not like my conclusion. But they're playing Phoenix. I believe they're playing Phoenix in Brooklyn next. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so, so they totally have a chance now to prove my theory wrong over those next two games. I'm excited. I'm excited to read it. Yeah, it's very cool. Awesome, All right, man. Jonah. Enjoy your week, everybody hey. out there. Enjoy yours. Yeah. Take care, everybody. R.I.P. Super League. <laughs> Bye.